And so if someone's coming back to role-playing games and they're trying to figure out how do I find players? How do I get people to be interested? How do I find the time to play these role-playing games? Challenge that assumption that the way to play a role-playing game is to commit to a long-term campaign, to commit to being you know, a, a league player for baseball. And instead look at, you know, what are the games I can play where I can, you know, do a one shot or commit to a four session campaign, something that has a much lower profile of commitment, because that's going to be great for you as you, on your schedule, but it also makes it a lot easier to sort of invite other people in and get a taste of it. And Many of those people may be like, you know, I don't like it at all, which is great, which is fine. Or they'll be like, this is nice, but I, you know, I maybe want to do it like once every six months. And having the ability to kind of like play with those people too, because you're running these lower commitment games is, is really the way to find new players who then, you know, and some of those players will then want to join and play a game every Saturday for the next year. Like that's how you find the people. That's how you get people interested in making the commitment is by getting them involved in the, in the experience in the first place. Jay's gonna bring me back Give me a plus one to attack Whoa, oh, oh I want to come back to the dice Whoa, oh, oh, oh I think I need some good advice I need a roleplay rescue, oh yeah. I need a roleplay rescue, oh yeah, oh yeah. Hello, rescuers. My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. I know I said that season 10 had come to an end after 22 episodes, but when opportunity strikes, it's best to grasp it with both hands. Besides, episode 23 also has a nice mystic ring to it. My guest today is the single biggest influence on this podcast, a huge inspiration to me as a gamer and game master, and just about the best source of role-playing wisdom I have come across on the entire net. When he suggested he'd be open to doing an interview, well, I was thrilled. How could I say no? We hopped online and recorded this tour de force through at least three of his strongest themes that I learned over the past six to eight years or so of reading his blog. While I wish I had discovered this guest's work earlier, it's never too late to jump online and get reading. This is Season 10, Episode 23, Talking Role-Playing Games with Justin Alexander. Justin Alexander is a freelance writer and the author of the grand repository of ideas that is thealexandrian.net. His published works include more than 200 books, articles and reviews including gaming supplements published by Modifius Entertainment, Fantasy Flight Games, DreamPod 9, Atlas Games, Troll Lord Games and Dream Machine Productions. Justin is also the host of his own YouTube channels entitled Advanced Game Mastery, which you have to check out, and Quick GM Tips and of particular interest to me in recent weeks, his Let's Read 1974 D&D. His work is noted for its insight, good humour and deeply thoughtful suggestions. Hailing from Minneapolis, USA, Justin is also an actor and playwright and it's a very great honour for me to have him come on to Roleplay Rescue today. Hello Justin and welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me on. 
So let's just dive into stuff. Uh, what do you love about role-playing games? Oh, what I love about role-playing games is the chance to explore storytelling and world-building through a very unique and very participative lens. I remember back when I was in college, um, I was speaking to my professor in Greek classical literature, and uh, he wanted to know a little bit more about me, so we were having kind of a one-on-one meeting, and he asked me, he asked me, what do you, what, what do, you do as a hobby, what do you do? And I was like, well, I, I do these role-playing games. And he's like, why do, you, why do you play the role-playing games? And I was able to say, you know, it, it's actually very much in line with these Greek classics that we're reading. Um, the Argonautica at the times where we were in class. It was like, it's very much that, where it is this shared storytelling tradition mm-hmm. that we all get to participate in. It's just that the timeline is much more compressed. We're all there at the table yeah. together. And I, and I love that. And it's, it's really exciting to be able to explore what is kind of this entirely new medium that has only existed for about 50 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be kind of there exploring what the new possibilities of this unique medium are, both as a participant and as an audience member. Yeah, I've loved that too. I always feel as well in some ways though that over the last 50 years, we maybe got a bit stuck. I don't know what you think about that in terms of the way we approach running these games. And in a way, I think maybe, I don't know what the reasons are, we don't be cynical and dark about money and things, but um, I just kind of sometimes wonder if we did get a bit stalled. Do you have that view or, or not? You know, it's actually interesting. If, if you look at if you look at role playing games and you think of them as this new medium, as this mm-hmm. unique way of sharing stories and experiences, and you compare it to other mediums that we know of, th- there can be a feeling of being of being stuck. But I actually mm-hmm. like to think of it more along the lines of. Uh, figuring out how to break out of our shell, break out of the egg that we're inside of. Because if you look at other mediums, like take movies, for example, Mm -hmm. if you look at the early days of movies, for the first three, four decades of of films, Mm -hmm. the conceits of how stories were told in film were almost entirely based on how stories were told in theater, because everyone who was involved in filmmaking, for the most part, was coming from a theatrical background. The actors mm-hmm. had been trained in theatrical methods. All of the screenplay writers were most likely uh, playwrights who had been writing for the stage before that. And so you have this whole tradition of theatrical techniques that very naturally gets you know, grafted directly into the new medium. Mm-hmm. And it's only it's only when you really get not just the first generation of people who are exploring the new medium who are usually coming from a different medium, then you get that second generation. And that second generation is is often people who are looking at that first generation, but maybe coming to the medium fresh for the first time. And they're the ones who really begin experimenting with it. And then it's that third generation in film where suddenly you have people who are looking at people who were entirely involved in film. And it's those people who are beginning to become completely freed from the previous mediums. And you kind of see that in role-playing games as well, mm-hmm. I think, which is that, you know, the first people, the, the very first people playing role-playing games or creating role-playing games were coming from a wargaming background. Mm-hmm. And then you do have, obviously, as people begin realizing what a powerful, you know, storytelling medium it can be, that you have people coming in who are then bringing in traditions from fantasy novels, from fantasy TV shows, from fantasy movies, from these these linear narrative structures that we've had for uh, you know <clears throat> decades or centuries or millennia, depending on on which form we're talking about. And they're trying to figure out how to use the skills that they know and the forms that they're familiar with in role playing games. And that can feel a little bit like getting stuck. It can feel a little bit like why are we not exploring what our own medium is capable of? Mm. But I think that's part of the natural birthing process of a new medium is you have to go through that phase of like Mm. taking the things you know and then realizing, well, 
you know, what are the unique strengths of our current media? And, and I'm really excited by the fact I think we're actually reaching that that third phase where you have mm-hmm. a lot of people who are are very much into role playing games now who are completely about role playing games and are not trying to make them films or make them books. Mm-hmm. They are making them role playing games. No, that's good. It's really interesting to hear. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I guess we're in that period. I mean, as we go into the 2020s, you know, where um, I, I guess the the generation have come through. I mean, I'm probably in that second phase. I guess I, I started in I don't know, really the 80s. I suppose you know, 1980, very young. Um, and then you've we've come through that kind of following on from the wargaming lot behind. Uh, yeah, I guess it's the next generation, which is fantastic to see coming through. I mean, I um, I'm a teacher. I I introduce kids to these games at school, and it's really interesting to watch them play the way we play and then start breaking it. So, you know, in a, in a good way, you know, sort of <laughs> mucking about with it, really, which is really good to see. And I, I kind of hope that they will go further. Anyway, back to you. When did you get started with this? Was it, I think you've heard you mention 89 with second edition AD&D, but I might be wrong. 1989 is right. I actually got started, well, how I got started is a, is a, is a complicated story. <laughs> um, I became aware of role-playing games through sort of other mediums. There mm-hmm. were advertisements in Marvel Comics. Um, the E.T. novelization included a, a lengthy scene with the kids playing role-playing games, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So it was in the air. I was familiar with these games kind of because I was really fascinated by the idea of them, and I really wanted mm-hmm. to play them, but I couldn't quite figure out how to get in. And of course, this is this is the late 80s, so like the internet doesn't really exist yet. And so like mm-hmm. today, I'd just be like, Google how to play D&D and I'd figure it out really quickly, which mm-hmm. is just a fantastic luxury that I think people have these days. But at the time, I kept trying to figure it out. So I remember I was at a comic book convention and I saw the Batman role-playing game, which was mm-hmm. produced by, by May- Mayfair Games. Right. And I pick it up and like, oh, this is great. I love Batman. And I, I'm trying to have this role-playing game thing. So I'm going to buy mm-hmm. this. So I bought it. I read that book cover to cover. And at the end of it, I had no idea how to play a role-playing game. <laughs> So uh, my my dad actually had a couple of role playing games he'd gotten from a friend in college, and he mm-hmm. was like, "I've never played really played these, but here I know you're interested in this, so here mm-hmm. take a peek at this." And what he what he gave me was Bunnies and Burrows, right. uh, the game of playing rabbits, and also uh, Middle Earth role playing game by um, mm-hmm. by uh, Iron Crown Enterprises. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember reading through. Middle Earth role playing game, which came in a box. And that one, I was like, oh, okay, well, here's the steps for creating characters. Mm-hmm. And so I did that, but then had no idea what to do with the character at the end of it. So I was like, I still don't get it. And and the big breakthrough for me was actually the 1983 basic set by Frank Menser. Yep. Um, I remember my mom, my mom took me to the local game store, Pinnacle Games in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, I walked in and, and on top of the, they had like half high shelves. And on top of those shelves, they had little display racks and they had all mm-hmm. five of the basic expert companion master and immortals boxes lined up and basically i was like hey great this is this is it this is what i need like Mm -hmm. this 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 red box glaring red box like a siren calling out to me with the dragon on the cover this is what i need so i picked that up and frank menser did such an amazing job of teaching you step by step this this is what the game is about this is how you create a character this is how you actually dungeon master the game uh and that that was the that was the key in the lock and this was all happening in the summer of 1989 mm-hmm. and so shortly thereafter second edition was coming out and at the time i didn't even realize that it had just come out like it felt like the like dnd just you know it was an institution beyond me mm-hmm. um <laughs> but of course it was just a baby at the time it was it was like 15 years old at the time so um in these days i presume you're playing um you write a lot of reports from and stuff on what you're doing and all around of it are there any particular barriers for you in getting a game 
You know, the biggest thing over the past couple of years is obviously the elephant in the room, which is COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a lot, I had several campaigns that basically died on the altar of COVID. Like, yeah. I mean, on the list of problems with COVID, that's probably relatively low, but yeah. obviously a massive disruption, right? Mm-hmm. And I think also like we all, everyone in my circle is a lot more aware of health and the importance of not getting each other sick, whether it's COVID yeah. or not. And so as we've come back, as we've come back from COVID and begun gaming again, mm. uh, more in person, there are more cancellations over mm. the past few months for me, uh, just because whether it's me or somebody else, yeah. you know, if we're feeling sick, we're just like, you know, the responsible thing is to stay home and not get mm. other people sick. Um, so that, that, that can be a, a bit of a struggle. Um, and there, there, you know, there was, there was a couple, three different campaigns that have been put on hiatus for mm. COVID. And so there was a period there where I was trying to figure out, well, which ones of these are we in fact going to come off of hiatus? And the answer was not a lot of them. So only mm. some of them managed to come back. So that's that's kind of been that's kind of been a struggle and mm. somewhat of an emotional journey. Cause like sometimes you're like, boy, I really, you know, when we went into the into the lockdown, you think, boy, these things are going to come back. Mm. You know, we're going to everything's going to go back to normal. We're going to get these things back that we lost. And again, on the on the grand scale of things that we lost, a, a, a campaign is a relatively minor one. But it still really is like those characters, those experiences mm. that are never going to happen uh, do have an emotional impact, oddly enough. No, absolutely. I mean, my friends, my you know, my group, if you like, and also the wonderful patrons who support me, there's loads of us who are meeting on Discord and we're gaming. Trying to game online isn't quite the same, but, you know, we're trying to do that and that's all good. But you're right. I mean, my group died on the ultra of COVID as well. And in some ways, some people are never going to get back to the table because of the situations that they're in, which is the saddest thing ever. But I don't know, keep trying to encourage us. Um, but just like you, same problems, you know, cancellations and difficulties. And yeah. Okay. So how do you then keep yourself motivated to keep coming back and playing? That's 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 a good one. Well, it, it really actually does boil down to the very thing that makes the loss of those campaigns bittersweet, mm. which is that what motivates me to, to come back to the table as a game master in particular mm. is the un- literally unique experiences that we get to create mm. at the table with our, with our friends that that would not exist if we didn't get together. So like mm. that, that's the thing that motivates me is, is that I get excited as a game master to come to the table and discover what my players are going to share with me. Like that's really my, mantra as a game master I'm, I'm looking to prep material that i can actively play as a game master the same way that the players actively play their characters and so that when we come to that table i am sharing with the players but they are also sharing with me that we are all there mm-hmm. working together actively playing with our toys to make something unique and cool great and there's a clue in there to lead us into a, dis- a deeper discussion here because i know that your one of your mantras is don't prep plots prep situations tell us about that yeah so don't prep plots prep situations what i mean by that i mean so one thing to, one thing to be clear on is that the word plot can be a very weighted <laughs> term and it has a lot mm-hmm. of different meanings but when i say don't prep plots what i'm talking about is plots as they exist in other mediums like we were talking mm-hmm. before about you know inheriting things from other mediums and one thing you've inherited from other mediums from linear storytelling mediums is the idea of plots mm-hmm. the idea that the way that you you, you know, you prepare a story is that in a story, uh, A happens and then B happens and then C happens, that there is a linear sequence of events that happens in the Lord of the Rings or 
uh, or the new Batman movie, that there is this linear sequence of events that happens and that that's the way you prep stories. But when you prep a plot like that, when you prep a predetermined linear sequence of events, what you end up doing is basically stopping the players from being able to contribute to the evolution of the story at your table. Mm. And so when I say don't prep plot situations, I'm really getting back to that core idea of instead of prepping the things that you want to have happen at the table, prep the toys that you want to play with, the mm -hmm. situation that is existing in the game world when the players join it. And then you can actively play that situation, play with those toys that you've created while the players are playing with their toys, which are primarily the characters that they've created. And it's in that active play that you'll discover the story of role-playing games. So the story of a role-playing game does not come from a prepared plot, from a linear sequence that you've predetermined. The story of a role-playing game is a lived story that you discover in the moment. Mm. A lot of people uh, in my circles refer to it as emergent play, um, mm. if that makes some sense. The idea is that we're we're discovering it as we go, and the outcomes, yeah, they all emerge from the combination of rules and the methods we're using and the world that we've you know we were imagining together. So, it's a similar kind of um, concept is what I'm hearing here. Absolutely, that's a great term for it. Great. So, yeah, this, I, I want to talk to you mostly first and most importantly about this idea of game structures. Now, I when I started the podcast back in 2018, one of the first things I got talking about, and I had a whole load of gamers go, say, what now? Game structures. Um, so I was referring to your blog and I was like, you know, quoting bits and bobs from you and, and trying to explain that over time. So I thought it'd be a great opportunity to just hit that nail again, but get you to do it by going, what are game structures and why should we care about them? Absolutely. So one of the things that, that happens in role-playing games is that we... We have a lot of game structures, but we tend not to analyze them, which of course begs the question of what is a game structure? Yeah. Well, I think the way I often talk about it, if you think about a board game like Monopoly or Arkham Horror mm -hmm. uh, or Cosmic Encounter, the, the structure of that game is often very specific and very laid out in the rules. For example, mm -hmm. in Monopoly, there is a very specific turn order. You, at the beginning of your turn, you pick up the dice and you roll those dice and you move that number of spaces and there are specific actions that you can take. Now, based on the complexity of the game, if you tried to map what that like structure or procedure looked like, it would be, you know, it could be a very large infinite chain of forking decisions, but there is a very precise sequence of steps. And if you step, if you sit down to play uh, a, a typical board game, no one is confused about what their next action is supposed to be or what they're mm -hmm. supposed to do to get the game set up. All of those things are kind of spelled out in the rules, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the same thing can be true in a role-playing game, but oftentimes it is only in certain areas. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are kind of two things. There are game structures and there are scenario structures. And I tend to think of scenario structures as being kind of a subset of mm -hmm. game structures. Um, but so game structures in RPGs can include things like, say, the combat system, for example, in D&D, &D, where the combat system in D&D &D has traditionally been a very specific sequence. Uh, you roll initiative, determine action order, you have a certain set of actions you can take on your turn, etc. And so that's a very clear example of a game structure. But there are other game structures within role-playing games that tend to not be uh, oftentimes not even spelled out in the rule book, but they are sort of an assumed part of play. Yeah. A good example of this is, say, dungeon crawls in D&D, mm -hmm. &D, which if you look at the older rule books, have a very specific spelled out sequence in, say, the 1974 edition of the rules, for example. Mm -hmm. But if you look at fifth edition D&D, &D, for example, um, those specific procedures are not even 
mentioned in the rules. Mm-hmm. They talk about dungeons, but they don't talk about how to run dungeons. So, so when you look at that, that's what I kind of refer to as a scenario structure. Mm-hmm. Is what do you and, and and like part of it is like we talk about dungeons. It just for those of us who've been playing D and D there is a degree which is like, well, it's, it's a dungeon. Like you just sort of intuitively kind of feel like you understand what it is. Like, yeah, there's a map and there's rooms on it and there's numbers. What's the difficult part? Well, the difficult part is all of that if you have no idea what any of that has to do with. So, so a, dungeon, a dungeon scenario structure is, it is a map with rooms drawn out and those rooms have numbers and those numbers are are keys to to the description of the room in a room key and then there's also the the runtime procedures that go into that how what do you actually say to the players to describe the dungeon what choices what types of choices are the players making within the dungeon and so at, at a basic structural level once you begin looking at the dungeon in this way you can say okay well the basic procedure of a dungeon is that the players are in a room in the dungeon, you describe that room to them. They can choose to take whatever actions they want to within that room. When they don't have any more actions they want to take within that room or need to take within that room, they can choose an exit and go through it and they will eventually find another room and you can repeat that. Mm. And when you spell out that structure specifically along with the corresponding part of how you prep that structure in terms of the map and the key and all Mm. of that, what you have is a complete package. And when you understand that package as a dungeon master, then you are able to efficiently prep your material, understand what you need to prep in order to run the game successfully, and understand how you need to run at the table in order to have an effective experience. Now, dungeons are a good example of this because most people have that intuitive understanding of how to run dungeons. They've either gotten it by reading older editions of the rule books, or it's been kind of absorbed by osmosis through example <laughs> adventure modules, or they've learned it by osmosis from having someone be a DM for them, or from these days from watching actual play uh, uh, podcasts and the like. So, so that that all kind of is, but, but other scenario structures also exist or can exist and understanding those, each one of those you understand unlocks an infinite number of potential scenarios that can be created with it. Just like understanding how dungeons works means that you can access and create all the thousands and thousands of dungeons, which have been created over the Mm. years. So for example, another scenario structure I look at is like mystery scenarios and how do you design a mystery scenario? What do you prep for a mystery scenario in order to run a successful mystery? And Mm. One of the things I look at for that is, is what I refer to as the three clue rule, which is for every revelation you want the players to make, you need to include at least three clues. And then once you kind of have that as your basic understanding, you can look at how you can structure mysteries in different ways in order to make sure that they are robust and that they work at the table and they don't fall apart. Hmm. And I'm guessing that with the Dungeon Court, just to heart back, I had the experience with the red box of Mensa, Frank Mensa introducing me to how to do that. Um, as a player and as GM and one of the things I really fondly remember is you get a bit of a dungeon and then you get told to build a rest is that your experience too absolutely like that's that is why like my, my earlier story where we were talking about mm. me going through the Batman role-playing game yeah. and uh, Middle Earth role-playing and just not being able to figure out what do I actually do with this game how do I play this game is because those those games were not explaining the basic structures of how to play a role-playing game. They were just Mm -hmm. assuming anyone who read them knew those things, what to prep, how to run. And and, and in the case of like, if I remember correctly, the Batman role-playing game, although it has Mm -hmm. been 30 years since I read it, um, like they didn't even really explain like what a game master was. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's a pretty, like these days, again, you can Google it pretty easily, et cetera. But at the time, like I was really trying to figure out like, what is the actual process of like, 
doing this. Mm. Uh, and so that's a very basic fundamental thing that 12-year-old Justin was, or 10-year-old Justin was struggling with. But um, but you can you can have the same thing kind of going forward. So again, my experience with Mensa was Mensa, that's one of the things that made the basic set work as an introductory set for so many people mm. was the fact that, you know, it's a step-by-step process. You do this, you do this, you mm. do this, and and now you're playing the game. Um, and, and so Mensa did a great job of laying out what that structure was to get you to the point where you were playing the game. No, absolutely. I had a similar experience with the RuneQuest 2nd Edition box set, although it didn't contain the scenario structure really. It had the game structure of combat laid out. And so for the longest time, my friends and I were like, yeah, you could play that and you can have some really good fights and all <laughs> lots of really detailed fights. And we were fascinated by Glorantha as a, as a world. But yeah, now what? And it was, again, when we got Mensa, because that came a little later, um, that actually we, I think my friends started to figure it out. Our actual first introduction on our side was Traveller, which again is filled with structural advice and but again, very specific instructions about how to set up your game and how to play the game. Absolutely. And it's interesting you mentioned the combat thing because like most 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 role-playing games, the vast mm-hmm. majority of role-playing games, combat is the one place where there is actual structure. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, the point at which the point at which role-playing games kind of began moving towards having a single universal mechanic, some sort of central die roll that was usually like roll a die, add your ability and your skill. At that point, most of them lost pretty much all of their specific structure except for combat because there was Mm. this mechanic that the gm was supposed to just kind of know how they were supposed to make rulings with and then there was a combat system and what i have found over the years both in my personal experience the experience of players that i've seen and also you know anecdotal evidence from people Mm. telling me stories of their experience is that where play goes play gravitates towards structure whether that's a scenario structure or a game structure or a mechanical structure um play gravitates towards it which is why so much of play often ends up gravitating into combat mm-hmm. there's also something to talk about too is like it's interesting that when we talk about structures that there is this other structure which is that plot that we were talking about that in the absence of all other structures we fall back on the familiar we fall back on a happens then b happens then c happens and eventually that becomes sort of the railroad Mm. and so if you look historically at role-playing games most game masters have really been limited to like two structures and one of those is a dungeon Mm -hmm. and the other is a railroad um and occasionally have like a little bit of mystery on the side but oftentimes their mysteries are actually just railroads right Mm -hmm. And that's because they're trying to figure out they don't have the structure for prepping anything else. And the thing that happens with the railroad that's really interesting is the GM will have this railroad that they prep and the players feel no control over their destiny in the railroad, of course, because the railroad is all about denying the players the opportunity to make meaningful choices, because if they had a meaningful choice, then B might not happen. And then what happens, right? The whole train's derailed. So you have that going on, but then but then the one place where there is structure then is still combat. And so combat is the one place where the players in a railroaded campaign still feel like they have control usually, mm-hmm. because even the harshest railroading GMs usually still let players at least make some kind of meaningful decision in combat. And mm-hmm. so as a result, play gravitates towards that structure. And it's the place where players oftentimes have the most fun because it's the place where because there's a structure for them to make choices within, it's the place where they can make. I mean, the thing is, like, sometimes people talk about, like, we talk about scenario structures and people think, well, that just feels like a straitjacket. I can't, Mm -hmm. you know, know, it prevents me from doing these. In my experience, it frees you from doing those things because knowing what the structure is within that structure is where those meaningful choices happen. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, that's why combat becomes such a focal point for so many groups. It's because it's where the meaningful choices can happen. 
You got any theories on why games dropped these um, structures and procedures? I, I think I think the biggest thing is that you know we we, we use these terms like game structures and scenario mm-hmm. structures, and and frankly, these are terms that I invented about a decade yeah. ago. Mm-hmm. Before that, they didn't exist, and for the most part, people didn't really even I like. I mean, mm-hmm. my process of figuring this out was the process of like coming up with those terms and trying to figure out what those what mm. those terms really mean. There's an article on the Alexandrian on my website about game structures. And it's the mm. article I wrote as I was trying to figure out what this was that we, that I was kind of grappling with for a few mm. years before that. And if you read that essay, you know, I still stand by it, but there's a lot of rough edges in that essay because I'm trying to figure it out myself as mm. I'm writing it. And my thoughts on the matter have evolved over the past uh, decade plus since mm. I wrote that essay. Um, and so this is all very new. And so if you go back to like, now, now that's, that's, 2010 when I'm figuring that out Mm -hmm. and beginning to share with other people you go back 20 years earlier than that back to 1980 and in 1980, people are still trying to figure out what a role-playing game is there's still arguments about whether they should even be called role-playing games and what this what this new medium is is going Mm -hmm. to be and so there wasn't really this understanding yet that these scenario structures even existed and so when you don't consciously realize that something exists it's difficult for you to then consciously choose to put a focus on it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's real easy for people who have, I mean, it's what we were talking about before. It's really easy for people who have been taught by the 1974 white box of D and D or Menser's Mm -hmm. basic set or the other rule books that teach you how to run a dungeon crawl, for example, Mm -hmm. through this very specific procedure to just kind of assume that, uh, on a basic level, they just assume, well, you know, running a dungeon is obvious. The way this works is obvious. The things you should do when running a dungeon are obvious. And once you think, well, that's just sort of like some sort of like inherent knowledge, which, you know, everyone just kind of absorbs magically from the ether around them, it becomes really easy to not include that information yeah. uh, in the rule book. And of course, that you as you don't include that information in the rule book, the necessity is for people to gain it by osmosis from the ether around them mm-hmm. by looking at examples of other people or by absorbing them from published adventures. And uh, and then so those people, you know, never learned it from, from a procedural book that taught them. And so they just naturally assume that, well, I kind of just figured out what a dungeon was. So that that's just everyone, everyone should learn how to run a dungeon that way, right? And again, I focus on dungeons, but again, dungeons are just one example of this. Mm. And the reason that you can absorb dungeons by osmosis at all is because there was a couple generations of gamers like you and me who learned the procedures for that from from Arneson, from Gygax, mm. from these rule books. And when we learned those procedures, we were then able to like run those games and and create those adventures and create the environment in which that osmosis was possible. Mm. I kind of lost my train of thought there a little bit. <laughs> oh, the question was why why have we lost? It? I think that's really what it boils down to. You can kind of see that a little bit if you look at sort of the evolution of D and D rule books over the years, where mm. 1974 D and D and later Menser Basic have these specific procedures. But as you move through Advanced Dungeons and Dragons into Second Edition, into Third Edition, into Fourth Edition, into Fifth Edition, what you see is step by step the specific procedures, the specific structure, just kind of slowly fades fades out of the mm. books where you know they stop telling you how to run the dungeon and then they kind of stop telling you how to key the dungeon and like if you look at if you look at modern fifth edition core rule books for example they, they don't not only do they don't have any specific instructions about how to run a dungeon they don't have any specific instructions about how to 
map or key a dungeon, and they don't even have a sample map in the core rulebook anymore, which is actually keyed. They have like a sample map, which has no numbers on it. Mm -hmm. And I think you can see the impact that that has on designers. Uh, One thing I've been doing on the Alexandria the past couple of years is occasionally doing deep dives into the DMs Guild, for Mm -hmm. example, and taking a look at these DMs Guild uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of really fantastic stuff on the DM scale. It's such a, a marvelous trove of creativity mm. and resources for, for game masters. But one thing I've noticed increasingly over the last decade or so is that there are a surprising number of scenarios published mm. on the DM scale, which are dungeons. Like they are dungeons and oftentimes they'll even include maps, but the maps won't have numbers on them. And they won't be keyed. And so we end up with just like a map. And then there's like just undifferentiated paragraphs of like narrative description of the dungeon. And frequently like if the PCs do A, then they'll go to this room. But if they do Hmm. B, they'll go to this room. And I'm like, boy, this was solved tech in 1974, right? Like we learned in 1974 (laughs) how to put a number on a map and not have to like sort through six pages mm. of undifferentiated text to figure out what was in each room. So like that's that's the skills that I see mm. that has been lost because you don't consciously think about it. That's nice. excellent. Thank you. It's a really great summary of it all. And um, brings me to my next question, which is, so Royal Party Rescue, we're trying to get people to come back to the table. If they wanted to come back to the table and GM, where should they begin in your opinion? That's a great question. So if we're talking about people who have played previously Mm -hmm. um they do bring some you know basic knowledge base with them and so oftentimes what i tell people in that situation where like you have sort of the basic skills of knowing what a role-playing game is Mm -hmm. knowing how to be a game master that what i tell them is you know where you really want to start focusing on because so many people are like what game should i play that's even the best question to start with the best question to start with is like what genre are you interested in kind of regardless of role-playing games like what what things get you excited are you excited by horror are you excited by mysteries are you excited by cyberpunk are you excited by fantasy that will narrow the scope of what you are looking for you know considerably mm-hmm. um and, be, and beyond that, really, the, then then I would have, you know, oftentimes I do have these discussions with people, and it does kind of follow up into, okay, well, if you're interested in cyberpunk, here are the two or three games that I think are really, really good mm-hmm. cyberpunk games, for example, really good for running those cyberpunk experiences. I find myself constantly having conversations with people about, can we just not talk about rules for 10 minutes? And can we talk about the world? I talk about the world, the universe that we're going to play in. You know, mm-hmm. that's, I think it's a similar idea. What's going to get you excited? And... Um, I, I don't know, there's this real kind of let's buy rule books and collect them and read them kind of culture, which is fine. Um, but I'm very much more interested in, you know, what story are we going to create together? Um, and that's the richness of it all. So, yeah, nice sort of starting point of let's talk genre. It's kind of cool. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think you make a really great point there, which is like, yeah, it is, it's not that mechanics aren't important. Mm. It's that, you know, the mechanics serve the experience that you want to have. Yeah. Like if someone said, where should I go to for, on vacation, for example, the first thing I say is, well, what type of vacation do you want? Right. Mm. Because much like role-playing games, there is a, 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 a bountiful range yeah. of experiences. You know, it's interesting though, I was, I was thinking about specifically the question of like, you know, if, if you're coming back to role-playing games, if there's a reason why you've, you've stopped playing them and now you're interested mm. in coming back to them. I suspect that the reason most people stopped playing role-playing games is is often a time-based thing where, or, or an accessibility to other, to, to having a play group. Like so many people, you know, their play group falls apart and then they don't have anyone to play with. Mm. And so one thing, one thing I would recommend for people who are looking 
to get back into role-playing games is to challenge another assumption that we make about how role-playing games ought to be played. Mm -hmm. And so we often have this image now of a role-playing game being played uh, as like, you know, you get five other people together and you say, hey, let's all get together and we're going to play this campaign together where all of us are at every single session for, you know, the next 60 sessions to get us in D&D. &D, like we're going to play, you know, first to 20th level or even first mm -hmm. to 10th level, but we're all going to be getting together for the next year, two years, three years in order to play this campaign that is this long-term regular commitment. Mm -hmm. And that's that's challenging. That's challenging for anybody. The analogy I often use is like, you know, if, if the only way you could, if, if you were like, hey, baseball looks really interesting, uh, how do I start playing baseball? And someone's like, okay, well, if you want to try out this baseball thing, the first thing you need to do is you need to sign up for like uh, a, a, a local team and we're going to meet for practice on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays for the next three months. And you're going to have a game every Saturday for the rest of the year. And if that was the only way to get involved with baseball, there'd be a lot fewer baseball players. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's not how you get involved with baseball. The way you get involved in baseball is someone says, hey, do you want to play catch? Or, you know, hey, we're going to do a quick pickup game down at the park. You want to play one game. Mm -hmm. And so if someone's coming back to role-playing games and they're trying to figure out how do I find players? How do I get people to be interested? How do I find the time to play these role-playing games? Challenge that assumption that the way to play a role-playing game is to commit to a long-term campaign, to commit to being, you know, a, a league player for baseball. And instead look at, you know, what are the games I can play where I can, you know, do a one-shot? or commit to a four session campaign, something that has a much lower profile of mm -hmm. commitment, because that's going to be great for you as you, on your schedule, but it also makes it a lot easier to sort of invite other people in and get a taste of it. And many of those people may be like, you know, I'll, I don't like it at all, which is great, which is fine. Or they'll be like, this is nice, but I, you know, I maybe want to do it like once every six months. Mm -hmm. And having the ability to kind of like play with those people too because you're running these lower commitment games is, is really the way to find new players who then, you know, and some of those players playing catch, playing the pickup game at the local park will then want to join, you know, the local park league and play a game every Saturday for the next year. Like that's how you find the people. That's how you get people interested in making the commitment is by getting them involved in the, in the experience in the first place. That's great. And it sounds like it's going to segue beautifully into the subject of the open table manifesto. Well, it, you know, you put you put a quarter in me. Um, the uh, the open table manifesto, absolutely. So this is something I, something I talk about, which is very much conducive to the style of play that I was just discussing. Hmm. So, so the so the open table is another is another term I came up with on the Alexandrian that I coined on the Alexandrian. And what I'm referring to is a style of play in which, rather than having what I now refer to as a dedicated table, which is these dedicated five players who are going to get together every week from now until the end of eternity to play. You have instead an open table where you say, hey, I want to play on Tuesday. Who wants to come play with me? Mm -hmm. And so the open table is anybody who wants to come can show up. The table is, is open. And the, the basic structure of that actually dates all the way back to, the, to before the publication of D&D. This is actually the way that Dave Arneson was running his Castle Blackmore campaign, which was the creation of the modern role-playing game, and that mm -hmm. Gary Gygax learned from Arneson was then running his Castle Greyheart campaign. They were playing with this, open, with this open structure of, hey, who wants to come play with me on such and such a day? 
And the basic way it works is that whoever shows up, using D&D as an example, anybody who shows up, that's the adventuring party for the day. And, you know, in the case of Castle Blackmore or Castle Greyhawk, that would be the group that would go into the dungeon that day. They would have an adventure in the dungeon. They'd come back out of the dungeon. At the next session, it might be the same players. It might be different players. It might be the same players with different characters. But a different group would go into the dungeon and have a different adventure mm-hmm. in the dungeon. And the great thing about that style of play is it, it is conducive to all levels of commitment. If you have somebody who's like, I just want to play D&D like once every three months, they can come to one session every three months and their character shows up and they go on an adventure and they have a great time and you have a great time playing with them. And then, you know, they go away for three months and they come back three months later and they, and they you know, play again. And it's great. You can also have people who really want to play every single week and the open table is supportive of that as well. And so it's a different way of thinking about how we approach campaigns. And, and it's really, I, I, you know, when I started running my first open table back in 2009, uh, what I discovered was that it was absolutely amazing because A, I mean, I played role-playing games a lot more often mm. because uh, the, the, the commitment necessary to get a game up and running was so much less. If mm. somebody gets sick, like we were talking earlier about trying to get these, these games together, if somebody gets sick, you know, you can still play. They can come next week. It'll be just fine. Mm. And it's not like, you know, people do that with dedicated games as well, but it's often like a huge rigmarole. Like, like what, what's their character doing, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. The structure of an open table means, well, their character's at the tavern drinking. It doesn't matter because every <laughs> single week we have a different set of group, uh, characters who are going, you know, into that dungeon. So it, it supports that wide range. And then the other thing I discovered is that, you know, if, if you enjoy dedicated play, which I do, uh, the great thing about an open table is that it gives you such a rich recruiting group mm. for any dedicated table you want to play. And we talk about like different people have different tastes. There's so many people mm. I talk to who they, you know, they, their experience with role playing games is I have the five people I play with, and that is my group, and that is all that you know. That, the ha- I have to play with those people. Mm. And the trick is like you know, you get five people together, and and what can you agree on? Well, there's probably the game that you're currently playing because you're obviously already playing that game. But the minute you say, hey, does somebody want to try a cyberpunk game instead? Well, you know, maybe you get lucky and those five people are all interested in cyberpunk, which is not a given. Mm. And maybe they're all interested in the same cyberpunk game, which is not a given. And then you can play with them, that cyberpunk game. But if not, you've lost it. The, the thing I discovered with an open table is that within a couple of years of running my open table, I had I had a pool of about 60 players and who were participating in the open table. And some of those people, like I say, had played once or twice, maybe were coming back once a year, but there were other people who were more interested in the open table. And the biggest thing was with that breadth of players, I had a selection of people who were interested in, in more dedicated play. And I also knew that like, when you only have the specific five people and you want to assemble a group of five to play a game, you need those five people. If I have 12 people who are interested in playing long-term role-playing games and I say, hey, I want to run a cyberpunk campaign, uh, who's interested? I'm much more likely to find five people out of that group of 12 than I am needing to hit 100% five out of five, right? So what I discovered was that not only was the open table letting me play more because it made role-playing games as casually accessible as like let's play a board game tonight Mm. it also meant that i was able to create much more focused and rich dedicated table experiences as well because i was able to like find the players who were most excited about whatever that game was going to be Mm. i just want to say to listeners here that you know going to the alexandrian.net and looking up open table manifesto you're going to get a whole sequence of articles there you can work your way through and just get your head around it um but it does boil down to if i remember correctly having pretty fast access and quick setup 
need a open access game, the a game that's easy to pick up, and then lots and lots of repeatable, extensible, or reusable content. Yes, absolutely. And now, so for an ideal open table, I found that you want easy, easy, quick character creation. Mm -hmm. uh, you can use pregens, but I often find that like having some say in character creation is a real hook for new players. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I do do with open tables is I, it is an opportunity to reach out to people who haven't played role playing games before and get them mm -hmm. involved. And that process of actually creating a character or generating a character mm -hmm. is is such a great way for new players to be like, oh, hey, this is cool. So you, you want that because what you have is, you know, if, if you have an open table, you know, you may have five people there, three of them already have characters and two of them don't. Mm -hmm. What you don't want to do is have a game where you have to spend two hours creating characters while the three players who already have one are just like twiddling mm -hmm. their thumbs, right? Yeah. Um, so you want a quick character. Uh, the open access system that you were talking about, what I mean by that is, is you really want a system that can be explained very quickly to the players. And that usually means, in my experience, you want a system that doesn't require a lot of specifically mechanical choices to be made by the players in order for the game to be played meaningfully. Mm -hmm. A good example of a game that requires lots of really precise mechanical decision-making is, say, 4th edition D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. And it's not meant to be a slag on 4th edition. Sometimes people think I'm slagging 4th edition for that. There's other reasons why I might slag 4th edition, but that's not one of the reasons for them. <laughs> the thing with 4th edition is that there is... Like for a lot of classes, um, there are oftentimes like you have a sword and you want to hit somebody with it, but there are two different mechanical ways of hitting somebody with the sword. And the distinction is entirely in like which dice you're rolling or exactly how much damage you're doing versus different effect. And the only way to make those decisions meaningfully is if you understand the mechanics of the game. Uh, so that's a very difficult game to get new players quickly up to speed on because mm -hmm. they have to understand all the mechanical minutiae of the system yeah. in order to make those decisions. Um, whereas an open access game is often one where there is a universal mechanic and for the most part the gm so, so for example like a in um in third edition DD, for example i can usually just say the system consists of rolling 1d20 and adding one of the numbers on your character sheet i will tell you which number you need to add mm -hmm. uh when i tell you to make the check and that's all you need to do and tell me the number that's very easy for new players to get on board and there's a lot of mechanical richness that can be unlocked after that but there's not a lot of places where you have to understand the mechanics in order to declare actions is basically um, what you're looking for there. Yeah, and then the third part that makes the the open table uh, really thing in my experience is having reusable and extendable content. And there's several different ways of doing that. I kind of dive into that more in more detail in the manifesto itself. But like a good example is like the mega dungeons that Arneson and Gygax were using. Again, just one example, but the earliest one. And the, the key to that was you have a giant dungeon map. It's so large that you can never really explore the entirety of the dungeon. And not only is it stocked with a bunch of stuff, but then there are also procedures in place in 1974 D&D, for example, to restock that dungeon with new content. So you go in, you fight some stuff, but then over time, new goblins, new skeletons will move in and kind of, re so you still have the same dungeon map, but you've renewed the content yeah. of that adventure in different ways. And that's really great for an open table because it reduces your prep load as a GM to get that next session up and running. Great, thank you. Uh, and you just mentioned it, we've mentioned it several times, 1974 Dungeons and Dragons. I believe that you had an experience running, is it one of your open tables or even maybe your first was the Caverns of Thracia, if I remember correctly, That's from right. the articles. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What did you discover going back to 1974? Well, it's kind of how I ended up falling into this open table thing in general, was mm -hmm. that uh, Wizards of the Coast had offered up um, 
had offered for sale PDF versions of the original 1974 mm. D&D rules. And for a while they weren't, and now they are again. So you can find those PDFs available on, on DriveThruRPG and the DMs Guild. Uh, but I, I come into possession of these PDFs. I read through them and I said, wouldn't it be fun to play the original 1974 D&D using the original rules? And we pretended as if like it was 1974. We didn't know anything else about role-playing games. We just sat down and tried to figure out what this new game was using using this this white box edition mm. of of D anD D, and so I said, "Wouldn't it be fun?" And uh, and I had I had some other I had people who've been playing in my in my in my time dedicated campaign for D anD D third edition. I said, "Wouldn't it be fun to do this?" And so we got a bunch of them together one night, and we and we ran as a one shot. Like we'll do this one time. Mm. I, I was looking around for an adventure to run, and um, I happened to have Janelle Jacquet's caverns of thracia adventure that judges guild had published way back in the 70s and i said this this looks great let's let's go with this so there's kind of two two really great kind of just like lucky chances in terms because caverns of thracia is one of the best one of the best adventures ever published uh for D. and so i just kind of lucked into that to some extent just happened to be the thing that was there when i was looking around for something to run um and so it was supposed to be a one shot. And so my players, we quickly rolled up characters because 1974 D&D has this, you know, uh, super easy character generation system, which is literally roll 3D6 six times, choose class, choose race, buy equipment, play. Like that's, that's the whole character creation process. You can do that very quickly. Uh, and they went to the caverns of Thracia and I rolled a random encounter with a Minotaur and they all got killed. And then we rolled up new characters immediately and they went back and they all got killed again. Uh, when they went back, they did see, um, actually, no, the second set of characters tried a different entrance to the dungeon, got killed, rolled up a third set of characters. They went back, found the place where the Minotaur had put the heads of their former PCs on stakes around the entrance to the dungeon, and th- many of those PCs survived. Um, so, uh, but we had a lot of fun, and we said, wouldn't it be, uh, you know, let's do it again. Let's, let's, keep, let's keep exploring this dungeon. And so we had another one shot. And then another one shot. And the other thing that was kind of happening at the same time is that we were ta- we were we were having so much fun. We were telling other people about this this game that we were playing, and they're like, I'd, "I'd love to do this too." I was like, "Well, why don't you come to the next session then?" And so I kind of just fell backwards into this open table methodology. Of, you know, I've got a dungeon and I've got some rules and some quick character creation. Anybody who wants to show up, show up, and let's have some fun. And like I said, I kind of fallen backwards into the same structure that you know, Arneson and Gygax have been using way back in, in 70 and 74. Uh, and that, so I kind of discovered it organically as I guess it wasn't like some sort of master theory was like mm-hmm. Machiavellianly figuring this all out. <laughs> it was very much kind of falling into, this is a fun game. And the thing I've learned, the thing I've kind of realized as a result of that experience is that it, the, the D and D when you, when you played D and D this way, which most people did in the seventies, the game is incredibly viral because you can so easily invite other people to come in and play with you um, and you can share it. And like, I, and, and over the years since then, I've read in a number of, of fanzines and APAs from back in the seventies, stories of people who were introduced to D and D because they were, they were in their college dorms. They were walking down the hall. They saw some people gathered around a table playing some kind of game. They said, what is that? And they said, hey, come play with us. And they would sit down and like five minutes later, like have a wizard or a fighting man or whatever, and they'd be playing. And, and if you, it's difficult to imagine that happening in the modern, in the modern role-playing 
idea of these dedicated tables. Like even if you were sitting in a college dorm playing with the group that you play with every Saturday and have been playing with every Saturday for the past six months and somebody walked by and said, what is that? And you said, well, this is D&D, et cetera, et cetera. It would never occur to you to say, hey, do you want to sit down and play with us? Hmm. Because, you know, you've been doing this for six months. It takes a while to create a character. Uh, you're asking that, like, if they come in and play for a little bit and then leave, have they disrupted the continuity of the campaign? So like there's all those barriers that you know don't exist with an open table. We're like, yeah, more the more the merrier. Come join, come play. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is how you end up with uh, people like sixty players. How are you engaging that many people? And like, how did you find all those people? And it, it's because it was so easy. It was mm-hmm. so easy with anyone I encountered, or or the people I was playing with. Because I, you know, once once you kind of establish this, the people you're playing with will also be able to invite other people to come play with them. It's so easy for that to turn into a viral into mm-hmm. a viral network. It's really interesting that I'll tell you this little story because I stole all of that. In 2018, in uh, July, at the end of the school year, um, basically we had a sports day at school. And then I got asked, could you do something for the kids who don't like sports? So, yeah, of course I can. I'm sitting thinking, well, I'll do some, I'll do some Dungeons and Dragons. What will I do? So I grabbed, um, I grabbed the BX Dungeons and Dragons and I grabbed the Caverns of Thracia. And I made them roll up characters, and that's exactly what we did too. And you know what? Um, I think it was three or four months later. There were eighteen players um, in that in the school, kind of getting on with it. And eventually, those kids kind of broke off into some other groups and started to actually have more dedicated campaigns. But you know, I experienced the same thing that you did. Once I applied what I'd read, you know, from the Alexandria, that's what I'm trying to say. And it's actually amazing. It really, really was. And was as disparaging as I can sometimes be about like D&D as a game. Um, you know, I find all sorts of things that bug me about it. Actually, it is incredibly viral played in that way. It's absolutely wonderful. So yeah, thank you for that one. Quite welcome. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear about those kids too. Those, the, that's always a fantastic thing to hear. Yeah, and many of them still playing. So it's it's a really good thing to see. Um, yeah, but I guess my point being that this is the way in, especially for mm-hmm. younger players. Um, well, I'm working with teenagers a lot of time, but even for us coming back, you know, after years, well, you know, get that old dust off that old mincer box set or whatever, and you know, get some buddies around just to do that. I loved what I loved about this, to be honest with you, Justin, is this idea that you just kind of knock about we'll have a we'll have a one-off and we'll see what we like and i find most people go oh that's kind of cool Can we do yeah. that again yeah it's really really yeah nice. exactly and i think that's the biggest thing is like that it, you know whether it's you know you know whether it's an open table or just a one shot mm. and, and you know the other thing too is like we've been talking about role-playing games there there are other narrative tabletop games in the form of storytelling mm. games for example that many of those are, are really designed to deliver that one that one-off uh experience 10 candles the Quiet Year uh, by Avery Elder. Just some really fantastic games out there that are just really designed with no prep on your part to just sit down and play off the cuff when you want to do that. Brilliant. I'm conscious of time, and I wanted to ask, how can we support your work? Where will people find you? Um, go and do a little bit of a pitch for us. Where, where are you at right now? And what's coming? Well, that that question has become more complicated over the last year. But uh, <laughs> you can find me online at the the Alexandrian, the Alexandrian.net. That is sort of the hub of all of my activity. Yep. Um, 
as you mentioned, you'll find all kinds of essays there about game mastering and role playing. Um, I also do remixes of different published adventures where I share new material and remixed material for things like the Dragon Heist and Descent into Avernus campaigns and Eternal Lies for the Trail of Cthulhu game. Um, so those are all really cool resources. Uh, on that site, you'll find links to the rest of my hub as well, which includes I'm on Twitter at Hexcrawl. Uh, I have a Discord uh, where we have a little over a thousand people. Uh, I tell people you may come to want to talk with me and I'm there, but there are so many other talented GMs there. It's just a great hub to come for getting advice and for sharing resources um, for game masters and players alike. Uh, I'm missing something. Oh, I also stream on Twitch. Uh, so you can come find me at Twitch, um, at twitch.tv, The Alexandrian as well. I stream every Wednesday nights and, and try to do some pickup stuff as well. Uh, the other thing I am as well is I'm also the RPG producer at Atlas Games, uh, where we do games like Feng Shui, Ars Magica, Unknown Armies, Over the Edge, and our most recent is Magical Kitties Save the Day, uh, which is an, a really, if you're looking for a game to play with your kids, if you're a little bit older, you're getting back into RPGs, you want to share that love with your kids um, or any kids, I guess. Uh, it's a really great game that's kind of designed to both uh, be someone's first role-playing game and then also uh teach them how to be a GM for the first time as well, to share those skills as well. Took a lot of lessons from that Menser box set. First thing you actually do when you open up the box to Magical Kitty Save the Day is there's actually a comic book sitting on top, which is a choose your own adventure comic book that teaches you the rules of the game and shows you how to be a magical kitty, really kind of gives young players, any players, an opportunity to really kind of dive into that. So Atlas Games uh, is also a place to find my work at the moment. Mm. And of course you're on YouTube and I believe you have a Patreon as well. My goodness, yes, you're right. I, Like I say, it got much more complicated to answer this question. I do have a YouTube channel that is youtube.com slash The Alexandrian. Uh, and I do have a Patreon as well, which is actually patreon.com slash Justin Alexander, just to mix up the uh, the URLs. Um, but yes, and actually, I, I should say too, like people often like think of Patreon as a place where you go to support artists, which is great. And I fully encourage that. You can also follow people on Patreon and just get updates of what they're posting. And that's a great solution for the Alexandrian. If you want to get kind of just a regular like feed update, uh, the Patreon actually is a great place to follow, even if you're not a patron. Yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, to wrap up today, um, have you got anything that you would particularly like to say or add or throw in that we haven't talked about um, in regard to like getting back to the hobby and all of that? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, I think we've actually, I think we've actually, your questions have done a great job of, of covering all the bases. We talked about open tables. We talked about doing those one shots. We talked about, you know, pursuing, pursuing your passions first and then finding the mechanics next. Those are all the things I recommend to people looking to get into or back into the hobby. Well, Justin Alexander, thanks so much for coming on to Roleplay Rescue and spending some time with us. I hope it's been fun. Um, and I'll make sure all the links to stuff go in the, you know, the show notes and what have you, and we'll go from there. Thanks very much for your time. That's great. Thank you so much. And so that's it. A big thank you once again to Justin Alexander for offering and generously sharing the time to talk with us today. I'll stick links to the Alexandrian.net, the Alexandrian YouTube channel, and Justin's Patreon in the show notes. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to call into the show via speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue or you can head over to roleplayrescue.com and press the appropriate link. And finally, thanks to you, the listener, for showing up and lending me your ears. I hope you'll join me again 
for season 11. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. Game on.